this podcast from Jubilee Church Derby, a church family looking to make a difference across the city of Derby and beyond. This is a message from one of our Sunday celebrations, and you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. I spent the first few years of my preaching life offending congregations all around where I used to live by refusing to um, climb up into the pulpit and speak from the pulpit. I'd always stand at the front, uh, and now I'm old, and I realise what a good idea pulpits actually are. Uh, We're going to read uh, from Isaiah chapter 42 this morning, so if you want to turn to that... um, uh, this is our kind of launch pad for the things that we're going to be thinking about. I'll, I'll skip around and visit various other, uh, other places as well, but we're going to keep coming back here. Um, and just to give you kind of background, really, I guess, for this, um, we were in our life group meeting a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago maybe, uh, adoring God, uh, singing praise, praying, and uh, I just felt God uh, give this reference to me to read in our life group meeting, which I did, and I spoke about it a little bit, um, and then it didn't kind of leave me. And, uh, you know, sometimes you, you, bring, you bring your gift to the meeting, and you, you bring it, and it's dealt with, and you, you kind of move on, and then other times it just kind of sits with you, and you think, oh, there's a bit more to this. Um, so I got in touch with Graham, said, just God's been speaking to me from this passage. I think there's a bit more to it. Could I, could I bring this word, Graham? Very... Uh, very kindly said yes. So, what a risk. What a risk he takes. Isaiah is a prophet. So, we're in the Old Testament. He has quite a long ministry, actually. He's ministering through the reigns of a number of kings. Right at the beginning of his book in chapter 1, we read, This is the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So he's ministering for a long time. He's in the southern kingdom. Um, he lives at a time when the northern kingdom of Israel has, uh, falls to the Assyrian Empire. 722 BC, Samaria uh, is sacked by the Assyrians. He, he sees what is happening in that kingdom. He understands that they have rejected God. They have broken covenant. Um, and he understands that judgment is coming. And he sees that coming. And in his own nation of Judah. So Israel never had a good king. Judah has a mix of of godly kings and rebellious kings. But he sees in his own kingdom of Judah that they're breaking covenant with God. And so they entered the land with this covenant agreement with God. He would be their God. They would be his people. If they kept the covenant, there were blessings to enjoy in the land in relationship with God. And if they broke the covenant, there were consequences. There were curses of a broken covenant, one of which was that God would spew them out of the land. That's the word in Deuteronomy. It's the same word Jesus uses about a lukewarm church in the letters to the churches in Revelation. He will vomit them out of the land. And Isaiah is looking ahead prophetically, and he's seeing the day when that will happen. 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem and takes him into exile. Isaiah prophetically looking ahead, he sees, he sees that. He sees the consequence of breaking covenant with God. He sees uh, the destruction of Judah and of Jerusalem. He sees exile. 
Um, and much of the early part of his book is, is warnings of what will happen if the people continue to sin and to rebel and to worship idols. And then he sees the remnant in exile and he sees them returning. And he sees beyond that to a glorious kingdom of God that is coming and which will be ushered in by somebody who we first find introduced here in chapter 42, verse 1, the servant of the Lord. Now there are uh, four servant songs in Isaiah, uh, five depending which commentators you want, to, you want to run with really. And as we read through the servant songs, we have a growing understanding of who this leader will be. But chapter 42, verse 1, this is the first servant song. This is God introducing the one who would usher in this new kingdom. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. Now, we all have uh, the amazing spiritual gift of hindsight. It's, it's the one gift we all share. So we read this passage and we, we know, don't we, who Isaiah is talking about. And as you read the servant songs through, it becomes clearer and clearer. In chapter 52, we begin the servant song that in the NIV is entitled The Suffering and Glory of the Servant that contains these words about this man who was coming to usher in the kingdom. He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so, I, st I just read these verses again the other week, and I'm immediately drawn to the heart of Jesus. In the phrases, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And I start to remember why I fell in love with him all those years ago. I was nine years old when a school friend of mine said, do you want to come to a youth group that I go to on a Thursday night? And I said, what do you do? He said, we play games. Sounds good to me. So I went to this youth. He didn't tell me it was a Christian youth group. He didn't tell me that in the hour and a half that they spent half an hour with games and an hour was spent thinking about the Bible. But that was okay, because when I got there, I absolutely loved what I encountered. And the more I read about Jesus, the more I loved the way he dealt with people. He just loves 
people. Now, something really unusual happened this week in our home. Friday night, uh, Mel went to bed before me. That, that almost never happens. Um, I, I can sleep for England. Um, but I was in a particularly crucial point of the transfer window on my current game of football manager, and I, I needed to ensure that I got my centre-back signed, sealed, and delivered before I went to bed. So by the time I got to bed... Um, Sad but true. By the, by the time I got to bed, Mel had read her reading for the night, and she was so excited about her reading for that night. She'd been reading about Jesus when he heard the news that John the Baptist had been beheaded. And she said, she said he must, all he wanted to do was grieve, surely. All, he, all Jesus would have wanted to do was get on his own, be on his own, and grieve for his cousin. And he would have had that sense of fear, this is coming for me too. He knew who John the Baptist was. He, he'd read Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 53. He knew what was coming. There'd have been that sense in him of my, my time is getting closer. John the Baptist has been beheaded. I want to be on my own. I need my own headspace. I feel like this all the time. I've had children. I need my own headspace. I'm married. I still need my own headspace. Mel needs her own headspace. You know, when things happen, you just need to get out there and be in your own. Jesus can't do that because the crowds keep following him around. And instead of getting angry about it, Jesus looks on them and he has compassion for them. And it's out of that story that he then feeds the 5,000. Jesus just loves people. In any and every context, whatever is happening in his life, he loves people. And it stirs him like no one I'd ever read about or heard about or met before. Last week, when Graham spoke, he read from Mark chapter 1. And uh, I'm not going to recap. How many points did you have last week, Graham? Uh, I'm not going to recap. But Mark chapter 1, we read this story. We read it last week. It just, even as I'm sitting there, and I know that what's stirring my heart is how Jesus treats people. We read this story of a man with leprosy who comes and he begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. That is a, an unspeakable thing to have done in his day. You did not touch someone with leprosy. You shunned them. You pushed them outside of your village. You let them live in a cave somewhere where you might throw food and you made them walk around with bells so that they could shout out, unclean, unclean, as they came anywhere near you so that you could get out of the way, but you did not touch them. When I was coming into my teens... <laughs> whew, sorry, flashbacks. When I was coming into my teens in the 1980s, HIV and AIDS had just exploded onto the world scene. And we didn't, we, there was real confusion about what it was. But all we knew, all I knew, was that thousands of people were dying. And there were these strange government adverts on TV. And there was not, it was not clear how it was transmitted or what caused it or who could catch it. And in, and in the midst of that, there's a picture imprinted on my mind of Diana, Princess of Wales, sitting on a chair next to a hospital bed with a man dying of HIV and she's holding his hand. And it was a shocking thing at the time. 
that she would dare to do that. Jesus would have done that. Jesus would reach out and touch a leper and cleanse him. Jesus mixed with people you really shouldn't mix with in this world. In his band of disciples, he had someone who collaborated with the Roman Empire and he had a terrorist. That's what Simon the Zealot was. And in his group of friends, he had prostitutes. And he loved them. He spoke to people you shouldn't speak to. He loved people that he ought not to have loved. He's on a mountaintop in Samaria. And he speaks to a Samaritan woman. Two taboos. Who's a serial adulterer. Three taboos. And he loves her. And he talks to her. So this picture of a bruised reed is a picture of someone who is damaged by the things that have happened to them in their life. Reeds are quite slender things growing up in the marshes. The wind. Actually, one of the other uh, passages about John the Baptist that I've, I've read in thinking about this, when John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one or is someone coming? And Jesus says to him, tell him what you see. The lame walk, the blind see. Good news is preached to the poor. And then he turns to the crowd and said, when you went out to John the Baptist, what did you see? A reed blown by the wind. Reeds blown by the wind. We, 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 were, uh, we had the privilege of being amongst uh, uh, a woods of American, woods, uh, American redwoods and sequoias this last year. These huge trees that are hundreds and hundreds of feet and are absolutely like rock-solid, thousand-year-old trees. Reeds aren't like that. They blow in the wind. And a wind can break a reed. Or a bird can alight on it and snap it. They're, they're vulnerable. They're, they're easily damaged. Jesus... When he comes across someone who has been damaged by something that's happened to them, he doesn't break them. He doesn't discard them. He doesn't say, you have no value now. Reeds would have been used for measuring rods. That man in Ezekiel who measured the depth of the river measures a temple with a measuring rod. Well, that might have been a reed. And he'd have had a few of them because they break easily. They damage easily. And when he's, when, he's, when he's damaged one, he'd throw it away. It's no use to me anymore. It's not how Jesus treats people. One of the commentators on this passage says that uh, it's possible that um, some of the shepherds, like David when he was a young boy, would have taken a reed and made a flute from it. And he might have had a favorite kind of flute, and it might have had a beautiful timbre, which makes it sound like I know what I'm talking about, and I absolutely don't. <laughs> but if, if he damaged it, and it was his favorite flute, he wouldn't just throw it away. He'd mend it. When Jesus finds people who are damaged and hurt, he doesn't discard them. He doesn't say, well, you have no value or new worth, no worth. He heals them. When he stands up in the synagogue in Nazareth and he reads from Isaiah and says, this reading has happened today. What he reads is, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And our world is full of people, isn't it, who have been damaged by things that have happened to them. Unspeakable things. I watch the news. I watch the news a lot. I watch the news this week. We have the black cab taxi driver 
who's committed terrible crimes against women, who's up for release on parole. There's the story of the football coach that has gone around football clubs coaching young kids and abusing them. And my understanding this week, Gary Speed was one of those children went on to commit suicide, one of a number of men potentially abused by that man who's gone on to commit suicide. We live in a, a country of broken men. Every 90 minutes, a man takes his life. The biggest risk of suicide in our country right now is men in their 40s. I was watching Newsnight where two of the gymnasts who've been abused by the, by the team doctor were speaking, and one of them began to explain what happened. I think it was Emily Maitlis doing the interview. One of these girls began to explain what happened, and for a moment I'm shocked that the BBC will allow that. And then I catch myself and I think, why am I more shocked by that than by what she experienced? And the thing is, it's not just on our TVs, is it? If it was just on our TVs, I'd be able to switch it off and try and pretend that that wasn't life for most people. But every day, every day, I'm dealing with people to whom unspeakable things have happened. A young man with a big knife wound in his chest from his father. A young girl who was raped by her brother. I think, Lord, how do you heal these people? How do we help these people? Jesus doesn't say that their experience makes them worthless. And trust me, the way that so many people respond to things like that makes them very difficult to love. They don't want to let you close. But Jesus loves them. He sees their worth and their value. He knows that they are objects of mercy and grace. And we want to bring that to them. And by contrast, as commentators would have us understand this, a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. If you think about the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 25 of the ten virgins, the, the wise and foolish virgins, you know that parable? They're getting ready for the, for the bridegroom. They take their oil lamps, so a smouldering wick. They would have had uh, a small clay pot that would have had oil in it, and they take flax and they twine it and put it in the oil, and it would come out through a little pinched point uh, at the end of the lamp, and they'd light it. That was their lamp. As long as there's oil in the lamp, they have light. So the wise virgins take oil with them in case the bridegroom is delayed. And the unwise, the foolish, take no oil. So by the time the bridegroom arrives, because he's delayed, they've got no oil, their flame has gone out. So there's an element, commentators would suggest, where a bruised reed is someone who has experienced other people's sin or life's hardships and it's damaged them, but a smouldering wick is perhaps someone who has a certain responsibility for the situation that they find themselves in. You know, people do bad things. People make bad choices. There is an element of responsibility for some people for the things that they experience. They have made choices. But you know what? Jesus doesn't condemn them for that. He doesn't snuff them out. 
My dad used to snuff candles out at Christmas with his fingers. I was just a child in memory. He used to, I don't know how he did it. He used to say, no sense, no feeling. That was his explanation. But he would go up to a candle and he'd pinch it and he'd put it right out and there was no smoke when it had finished. Which is the only thing that makes sense of Yankee candles as far as I'm concerned. I can't understand. Why would you spend 20 quid on a candle that burns for two hours to fill your house with a beautiful smell and then blow it out and 30 seconds later all you can smell is smoke? Why would... Gee, you see... It's relatively easy to have compassion for people to whom terrible things have happened. It is much more challenging to have compassion for people who have done terrible things. I found myself not so long ago in the tightest bear hug of my life with a a guy. He was crying, I was crying. He was on the sex offenders register. He just committed another quite violent crime. And all I could think was, I still love you. I still love you. I'm still filled with compassion for you. I'm not condoning what you've done. But I'm not condemning you either. When, when Jesus is in Jerusalem and the crowds bring to him a woman who's been caught in adultery and, and all they want is blood and death. He's the only person in history who could have condemned her by the standards he set. If you've got no sin, throw the first stone. He doesn't do that. He doesn't ignore her sin. He deals with it. And in the process, he finds forgiveness and grace and mercy for her. See, when you start looking at what people have done and you come to the conclusion that person does not deserve to be loved, you have so misunderstood the depravity of your own sin and your need for the grace and mercy of God. You have completely missed the point. You need the shed blood of Jesus just as much as they do. You are only saved by faith in Jesus. That's their only hope. On the cross, having been tortured and beaten and mocked and spat upon, what does Jesus pray for the people who are taking his life? Father, forgive them. It doesn't matter whether the wrong in our life is wrong that's been done to us or wrong that we have done. Jesus loves us. And the cross finds a way for us to enjoy the love and the grace that he has for us. And we're no different from anybody else in this world. Jesus' heart of compassion for the poor is what drew me to him as a child and it's what draws me back to him every day. It's what gives me the strength. I want to be like him.
He wants us to be like him. That's the whole point of salvation, is that we become like him. And in this world, we demonstrate and reflect his glory, his majesty, his love, and his grace. And at the same time, Jesus has this amazing strength of character. So commentators suggest that the two things that are said about Jesus here reflect uh, the two things that we know about the people he loves. Just as a bruised reed is someone who's been damaged by external forces, he will not falter is a statement about how Jesus does not allow the opposition that he faces or the hardships that he has or the trouble that comes his way or the persecution to deflect him from his mission. He does not falter. External forces will not change him. Luke picks up on a phrase in Isaiah after Peter's confession of him as as, as the Christ. He sets his face like flint. Nothing that happens to him, no temptation of the devil, no opposition of the crowd, deflects him from his mission. And nor is he discouraged. There's nothing inside him. No fear. No doubt. No loss of confidence that means he will not see the mission through. So he has this incredibly tender heart and this incredibly determined resolve. We need that. We need that if we are going to love people the way Jesus loves them. We need that strength of character. We need that determination that we will not be deflected because we will be persecuted. We will be opposed. Jesus makes that absolutely clear. If you you were sold Christianity on the basis that your life would be great, um, you were missold Christianity. Jesus never promised that. He promised just the opposite. And he promised us that if we are persecuted because of righteousness, we are blessed by God. We need that. I think perseverance is one of the most undervalued, underspoken about gifts of the Spirit. We need perseverance. I don't want to speak about that for too long because I want to just raise the question, what is it Jesus actually comes to do? So I'm drawn in by this. Okay, this this is my understanding of this passage. I get drawn in because I just love Jesus. I love the way he treats people. I love his heart. I love It's his love that won us, isn't it? But he came to do something. And so I'm reading that. This is kicking around. I'm such a slow thinker. Seriously. The older I get, the slower I get. I'm reading this. I'm kicking around. And then suddenly God drops this word in, justice. justice. And I reread the passage. It's there three times. I didn't see it for weeks. You've got to pity. You've got to pity people who have to deal with me in the business world, don't you? Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. Now, we can, we can develop a very forensic view of justice. It comes from reading Romans 1 to 8 too much, um, and the rest of Scripture, not enough. Um, there is justice at the cross. 
That is where we are justified. That's God's act of justice. He punishes righteousness, he punishes sin, and he gives us righteousness. But that's not all that justice is. And it's, it's especially not the kind of justice that we read about most often in Scripture. Justice is not just about punishing wrong. Okay, we have a sense, don't we, that justice is about punishing wrong. We had a great example of that in our five-a-side football on Monday night. Forgive me for this moment of um, self-aggrandizement, but um, I would have scored an amazing goal on Monday night. I mean, I, I, I'm, I, most, Paul can walk faster than I can run, and I can run for about two minutes, but I saw an opportunity on Monday night to score from my own half because the opposition's goalkeeper um, was nowhere near their goal, and they reached their hand up into the air and stopped the ball from going... Now, in my head, it would have been an amazing guy. It probably would have missed, but in my head, that was my Wembley Cup final winning moment. And I was denied by the raised hand of the opposition goalkeeper. We scored from the free kick that resulted, and one of the opposition members said, actually, justice has been done there. The wrong has been punished. No, justice isn't just about punishing wrong. It's about doing right. Justice, my unnamed friend... Would, would have been not putting your hands up in the first place. So Proverbs, Proverbs teaches us to do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Ten verses later, there's a proverb that says, whoever shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will himself cry out and not be answered. When Isaiah is telling people at the beginning uh, of, of this book how it is that they've broken covenant, and he's explaining to them that their worship is worthless and meaningless to, to God, he says this, stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Pleads the case of the widow. In Psalm 72, which is a psalm about the kind of king that Solomon would be, but actually looks beyond Solomon to an even greater king, we read about that king. He will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence. For precious is their blood in his sight. In the name of our church, we have the checks and balances of God's kingdom, Jubilee, that is designed to prevent people using their power and their wealth and their knowledge and their influence for their own gain at the expense of the poor and the vulnerable. In the year of Jubilee, on the Day of Atonement, every 50 years, when the ram's horn was blown, if you had got yourself into debt, your debt was cancelled. If you'd had to sell your land to pay your debt, your land was returned to you. If you'd sold your home, it was returned to you. If you'd sold yourself into slavery, you were set free. Now, is this a picture of the cross? Absolutely it is. is it, does it also speak to the importance in God's heart of looking after the poor and the vulnerable? Absolutely it does. Is Jesus concerned with material things? Yes, he is. When a rich young man comes to him and says, what must I do to gain eternal life? And they deal with the issues of, well, you've lived by the law, you've, you've lived righteously, that's great. 
The young man feels embarrassed. There must be something else. Jesus says, yeah, of course there is. Sell your possessions. Give the money to the poor. And then come and follow me. The early church understood it. I always smile when Graham talks about Acts 2.42. I smile. It's your favorite passage, isn't it? I smile because it's the first passage I ever did a teaching series on. And uh, I can't remember what I said. I can't remember what I said yesterday most of the time. Even this morning is a bit of a blur. There are things that we love about this passage. That I love being devoted to some of these things. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Yeah, they're great things to be devoted to, aren't they? I wish we could stop there, but we can't. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. And I wish that was a one-off, but it isn't. Chapter 4, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, and they shared everything they had. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Justice includes, involves social justice. In God's heart, you do not use your strength or advantage for your own gain at the expense of the poor. Jesus does not do that. In fact, Paul addresses that issue in Philippians chapter 2 where he says that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And that word grasped means used to his own advantage. Jesus did not use his divine nature for his own glory. Instead, he emptied himself, became nothing, took the form of a servant, and humbled himself to death on a cross. He used his strength and wisdom and power for our gain. That's the heart of Jesus. That's the heart of Jesus. I was, I was asked... Uh, Actually, the church, let's, let's just... A couple of quotes, because you might think that I'm just an oddball. Ben uh, said to me uh, a little while ago, read Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice. What a great recommendation. Tim Keller says this. If you're trying to live a life in accordance with the Bible, the concept and call to justice are inescapable. We do justice when we give all human beings their due as creations of God. Doing justice includes not only the righting of wrongs, but generosity and social concern, especially towards the poor and vulnerable. Jim Wallace says this, a bit more controversial. A worshipping community is only acceptable to God if its members are acting every day to make justice more possible. In the world, I was asked to go and do some assemblies um, at a local primary school a few months ago on the Christian response to homelessness. You could perhaps see where they got that idea from. I said, How overtly Christian can I be? Because now I haven't been in schools for a long time and I know there's lots of things you're not allowed to say anymore. And they said, You can be as Christian as you like. We are inviting you to give the Christian perspective. I thought that's quite challenging. I'm happy with that. I think I'll read them what Jesus says. 
So I went to the message, because they're young, and I want them to get this. We've sung about Jesus returning in his glory. No, we're going to. We're going to sing in a few minutes about Jesus returning in his glory. This is the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 25, as uh, Eugene Peterson would have us understand it. When he finally arrives, blazing in beauty with all his angels with him, the Son of Man will take his place on his glorious throne. All the nations will be arranged before him, and he will sort the people out, much as a shepherd sorts out sheep and goats. And the king will say to those on his right, Enter, you who are blessed by my Father. Take what's coming to you in this kingdom. It's been ready for you since the world's foundation. And here's why. I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was homeless, and you gave me a room. I was shivering, and you gave me clothes. I was sick, and you stopped to visit. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the sheep are going to say, Master, what are you talking about? When did we ever see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you a drink? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will say, I'm telling you the solemn truth. Whenever you did one of these things to someone who was overlooked or ignored... That was me. You did it to me. And he will turn to the goats and say, get out, worthless goats. You are good for nothing but the fires of hell. Why? Because I was hungry and you gave me no meal. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was homeless and you gave me no bed. I was shivering, and you gave me no clothes. I was sick and in prison, and you never visited. And they're going to say, Master, what are you talking about? When did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or homeless or shivering or sick and in prison and didn't help? And he will answer them, I'm telling you the solemn truth. Whenever you failed to do one of these things to someone who was being overlooked or ignored, that was me. You failed to do it to me. My question for you this morning to reflect on is not what are you doing? Because that's not where Jesus starts. My question to you is this. How is your heart? How is your heart? If you want to be like Jesus... You have to cultivate a heart like his. When you meet bruised reeds, you have to bind them up because you love them. And when you meet smoldering wicks, you restore them and you refill them with oil because you love them. How's your heart? And from your heart, from a heart that's right with God, that's in tune with Jesus, will come acts and works of random kindness all through your 50s and social justice. We're going to sing a song. This is our response. I've overrun. So I apologize for this. This song is our response. It contains the words, which is why I chose it. 
Break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause. And I just want to ask this. If when you sing those words, something in your spirit says, I absolutely mean this this morning. It's not just words I'm singing. Respond to him. Tell someone. Pray it out. But do something. Thank you.